Professor Forsyth, this is our fourth interview in which we will try to present an overview of your scholarly work. And in the CV that you kindly sent me, you listed 11 books and 88 journal articles. The articles were written over five decades and cover the period 1975 to 2017, which is 42 years of endeavour. So I did a rough count of the journal articles and estimate that 42 were on Southern African topics and 46 on UK topics. There was a roughly equal split in your geographical jurisdictional area of interest over your career. However, there was not an equal split in the time you spent in these two jurisdictions because you spent 11 years in South Africa and 39 years at the University of Cambridge. In other words, your interest was split half and half, even though you spent three times as much time in UK academic institutions. So as with other scholars, I've had to be very selective in what I've read and have concentrated our discussion on the three books of which you were the sole author. And I hope that this will encapsulate many of the very important points that you have contributed to the two jurisdictions during your career. As for your journal articles, four of the papers you've already commented upon in your previous interviews, your 1975, Some Aspects of Robbery, and the Lex Causa piece, these were your first two articles, and then your two important articles in, first of all, 1980, your Human Rights and Ideology, in which you mention your reading of Karl Popper and your mm. views on Marxism, and your 1981, Judicial Processes, Positivism and Civil Liberties. So to keep our discussion focused, I've looked at your 1981 book, Private International Law, written while you were at UCT, your 1985 In Danger for Their Talents, which was on a South African topic, although written in Cambridge as your PhD thesis, and finally, your 2014 edition of Wade's famous book, Administrative Law, which of course deals with English law. So could we start our discussion today with your 1985 In Danger for Their Talents, the study of the Appellate Division of the Supreme Court of South Africa from 1950 to 1980, published in 1985 by Duta, based on your PhD thesis that you wrote while at Keys under the supervision of Colin Turpin, another South African emigre. And you state in the preface, Professor Forsyth, page 7, that you are, and I quote, an unashamed positivist, and that the positivist lawyer does not approve of the morally abhorrent law any more than the physician approves of cancer. He simply recognises the law's existence. You go on to say that, and I quote, the remedy for it lies in changing the law and not adopting jurisprudential theories that deny the force of the law. And I wonder if you could enlarge on this topic. Well, I think it puts the point quite, quite, quite well, really. Um, laws, are, laws are phenomenon a social phenomenon that one needs an explanation for, some other way of identifying it. And it seems to me that the idea that you look at the, look at the sources of law and you apply reason to the sources of law, and that enables you to draw a conclusion as to what the law is on a particular point, is a pretty fair way of going about it. What lies behind this, of course, is on something I have touched on in the earlier interviews. Um, the climbs up Table Mountain that I undertook with my friend Johann Schiller. And he was much influenced by the Vienna School, having come from Vienna himself. And it's, it was almost an article of faith to him that positivism is an epistemology, not a theory of law. Uh, that means that meaning that it's a it's a way of acquiring knowledge of the law. It's not a way of finding out whether what the good law is, or what you would like the law to be. Positivism is a theory of knowledge, not a theory of law. Um, 
And I think that that is essentially right, and I've never felt much temptation to waver from it. Because what's the alternative? I mean, you can you can you can object to that on on all sorts of grounds, um, but ultimately you have to live with it. You can't say you can't say to the South African policeman who's just arrested you for a breach of the past laws. The past laws are morally abhorrent. They're not law. Um, that's not going to help you in the slightest. Uh, and it's just misleading to suggest that there is some more subtle, sophisticated jurisprudential theory that will allow you to escape from that dilemma. I don't think it is. So that's really why I'm an unashamed positivist. That doesn't mean to say that I don't think that a great deal of, of law in every society, but particularly in South Africa, is not unjust and should have been changed. And you can make whatever criticisms you want of the law and you'd probably find I, I agreed with them. But that's not a jurisprudential criticism that I would, I would accept. Um, and so I, I think that's, we may come back to some of these points uh, at a later stage, but that's about all I want to say about, about that statement in my preface to Endanger for Their Talents. It seems to me that it, it correctly expresses my point of view and the point of view that, that I defended in the 1981 article that I wrote criticizing John Dugard's theory of positivism. Um, I mean, perhaps I should go into that a little here. John Dugard had written a, wrote a very influential article in which he argued that the South African judges denied that they had, they had judicial choice they took the view that um, <clears throat> they took the view that Parliament laid down the law, and it was simply the judge's task loyally to apply that law, without regard to its moral qualities at all. And that's the point of view that Dugard criticizes it, and he and David Dysonhouse would fall into this category too criticizes me and others who agree with me uh, as denying judicial choice and see again castigate positivism as being a bad theory because it um, because it allows you to believe that the judicial process is purely mechanical and there's no such thing as judicial choice. Now that is completely to misunderstand my point of view, which is that the judges have a considerable degree of choice. And we in fact praise John Dugard in his, in his, for, in his article, having shown that quite, quite clearly by consideration of particular cases and so forth, that often the judges have a choice in applying the law, uh, that the law is ambiguous and they've got to choose one or one of several possible interpretations um, and that's absolutely right uh, and it's it's it, it's it's wrong of the South African judges to say that they had no choice that their task is to simply to to apply the laws laid down by Parliament that's that's unrealistic and an incorrect picture of the of the judicial process in South Africa in the in the apartheid, apartheid years, but it's not not my point of view. My point of view is, is is quite clearly, and I think this is crystal clear if you look at the writings. It's is that there is very often a choice, and the judges um, the judges make a make a choice. They make make selections of what interpretation of the law they're going to going to apply, and. The whole purpose of my thesis was to look at the way they exercised those choices by a thoroughly positivistic way of looking at the law, analysing it closely, arguing about it, reasoning about it, 
is to look at the law and to show that the judges had a choice. And the whole point of my book is to look at look at those choices and see what conclusions you can reach. And the conclusions that I reached may seem quite mild now, but were all that um, are that during the course of the apartheid years, the judges became increasingly pro-executive in the choices that they made. Um, and that was obviously a, a fact which I don't think has been seriously challenged now. Um, the judges no longer sort of suggest that they weren't um, pro-executive, but they recognised that there was a growth in uh, pro-executive attitude. And that was controversial at the time in orthodox legal circles in South Africa at the time I put it forward. Um, I also think that although the, the theory is, is less well established, um, I also link that with the idea that this is to do with the growth of the number of judges from Pretoria. It's quite, ph quite, quite phenomenal when you look at the performance of the appellate division over time. You find that in the in the mid-60s to, no, to the 70s, the number of judges appointed to the appellate division, which was of course purely an executive decision, it was a decision by the, by the Prime Minister, later State President, the appointment of, of, of a judge to the appellate division seemed to come predominantly from judges in, who were sitting in Pretoria, from junior judges sitting in Pretoria. And Pretoria is uncontroversially, I would have thought, one of the most controversial parts of parts of the country in those days, and um, and what's more, they had an all-white bar until well, I think well into the into the nineteen eighties that they had actually had a rule precluding black barristers, black advocates from practicing in Pretoria. And all of this kind of leads to a, 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 the great engine of pro-executive pro decision-making in South Africa. And that's really what I'm trying to say in my, in, in my book, In Danger for Their Talents. That sends two sort of, not contradictory things, but sort of slightly divergent things. The judges had a choice was the question that they had to do what Parliament laid down. They had a choice, um, but they didn't exercise those choices as best they might. Thank you. Um, in Chapter 5, which you call Summing Up and a Little Theory, you summarise the conclusions from your thesis in relation to Professor Wax's idea about judges resigning um, and Professor Dugard questions the utility of this while you yourself disagree with the theory that the judges should resign. Mm -hmm. And on page 236 you say, no good case can be made for what you imply would be mass resignation to please a few academics because, as you state, most judicial work was in criminal trials rather than political and security issues. Yes, uh, this is again a question of laws a phenomenon in apartheid South Africa. Even in apartheid South Africa, the vast majority of legal business um, was not concerned with apartheid. Um, and if the Supreme Court, in the more serious, heavier work, is, would have relatively little to do with national security and terrorism and the past laws and the various uh, offensive aspects of the legal system. A typical South African puny judge in one of the provincial divisions would spend most of his time doing criminal work. And these, these would, this would be criminal work. Obviously, some of the cases were, were political cases. Um, but um, but my, much of the cases were serious political work, serious criminal work, that in which the accused person deserved a fair trial, um, 
ask the question of robbery or murder or burglary or any serious crime of that nature, you the, the, obviously the accused person should have a fair trial and without wanting to be understood as suggesting that the South African trials were, were uniformly fair, um, deficiencies, such deficiencies as there were in, in those trials would have come from lack of de decent representation because of the legal aid system was so rudimentary uh, and things of that kind, not from not from a lack of impartiality on the part of the judges. The judges on the half, one thing, you, one way in which you can see this is in the um, in the days in the days of apartheid when there were lots of cases being tried, terrorism act cases, and so forth. Um, even when the even when the law was clearly an apartheid level law and to be castigated for that reason you very seldom found that the accused persons would fail to recognize the jurisdiction of the court they would still find it worthwhile precisely because the judges were formally independent they didn't take they didn't ring up the minister of justice to say how should i decide this case um, because they were formally independent, the 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 people on the on the hard end of the apartheid laws would generally think that it was worthwhile fighting their case in the court instead of turning their back on the court and having nothing to do with the proceedings. Right. And they were they were successful. One can say not as often as they should have been, or whatever, but they were successful in that strategy efficiently frequently for it to persist as a strategy right till the end. Right. Thank you. Uh, could we turn now to the book that you wrote while you were at UCT and which appeared about the time you left South Africa yes. to do your PhD? And this was your private international law, published in 1981 by Juta, the first edition. You were a senior lecturer in Roman Dutch law and 32 years old when it appeared. And in the preface, page 7, you said that at the time, several independent states within South Africa, with their own legal systems, were coming into existence, and that South African courts would soon be facing some difficult problems when or if these systems clashed. But are there any legacies of these in the present-day South Africa some 40 years later? They're not, they're not really much legacy in the form of choice of law. There were, was for a long time legacies, differences in, in choice of law in different British colonies making up South Africa. Law might be slightly different between the Cape and the Tau. And the question would be, is your, is your Cape divorce going to be recognised in the Tau or vice versa? Uh, and so you would have those sorts of questions. Those have practically all disappeared now. Uh, the law has been, been become uniform. Um, but then, at the stage that I was writing about then, was just the stage at which apartheid was supposedly reaching its 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 ultimate goal, in that all South Africa was going to be divided up into independent states. And um, and those independent states, being independent, could obviously make the laws differently, and so you'd have a problem of which law were you to apply to? Take, for instance, um, driving a car. If you drove a car from from sort of somewhere in the northern Gauteng province down to the Western Cape province, you'd probably go through about three or four different South African provinces and so if you had an accident in, if you were a car full of people from Johannesburg who left, left the, the road in the middle of the Orange Free State and, had a, and your car was written off, who paid for the damages to the car? Did you use the law of the Free State or did you use the law of Johannesburg 
because everybody came from Johannesburg, whatever it might be. Uh, so there's, theoretically that kind of choice of law issue can still arise, but because the law is now, now uniform in most areas, it, it doesn't arise in, in that context. But where it is true is conflict of laws isn't only concerned with choice of law, it's also concerned with jurisdiction of the courts. And there's a great legacy of apartheid in the jurisdiction of the courts in that in, you see it most clearly in the Siskai, because when the Siskai was made independent and the Transkai were made independent, then the, they each had established a, a Supreme Court of the Transkai and the Supreme Court of the Siskai, and they'd also each have established a Transkai and Appeal Court and a Siskai and Appeal Court. Um, so. It still is the case in, in South Africa that if you were litigating somewhere in, uh, in part of South Africa that used to be called the Eastern Cape, you'd, uh, you'd have to decide which court you could litigate in. It would be not completely obvious. They don't all have the same, well, they all have the same jurisdictional rules, but the uh, the jurisdictional rules would not be necessarily be applied in the same way. So it might make a difference whether you, you whether you issued summons in Siskai or Transkai, not just questions of convenience. So that's still quite a legacy. They've started trying to sort out the boundaries of the the courts, which were left in the in the in the original const new constitution were left unchanged. They've started trying to work them out, but it's still a bit of a mess. Right. Thank you very much. Um, in the main text in the section named The Meaning of the Law of Country X, on page 16, you discuss what effect is to be given to the law of states which are not recognized by the political setup in the Lex Furry. And one line of thought is that no regard should be taken of its laws, but you don't agree because you feel that individuals should not depend on the quirks of international politics, and you say that decisions should be taken on legal issues rather than political situations, citing East Germany, Rhodesia, and the UK recognizing laws in Germany at the end of World War II. So what is the situation in South Africa today for unrecognized states? For example, Taiwan springs to mind, or <coughs> Kosovo, de facto functioning states but not recognized internationally. Well, I argue, and I would argue this was the position in South Africa, although the decided cases are not really there to establish it, uh, but I would argue that recognition or non-recognition should not play a part in deciding matters of choice of law. And the reason for that is, is that in private international law we're concerned with private law concerned with doing justice between individuals. We shouldn't allow the, that justice to individuals to be determined by the vagaries of political life. I think I used a phrase of that kind. Yes. Take a case, I think it's called Adams, of a couple who were, were living, met and married in Rhodesia, or southern Rhodesia. This is an English case, incidentally, not a South African case. And they left Rhodesia and came to live in England, where they wanted to wanted to get a divorce. But were they but were they married at all? Because they'd married under the Rhodesian law, which was not to be recognised as coming from a, a non-state. Yeah. Now what is the point of denying justice to those two people um, simply because you're having a political disagreement with the government of the country in which a divorce was granted or whatever particular circumstance it might be. So I'm strongly of the view that one should not allow such essentially international law public international law issues to come into private international law. That's very interesting. Um, 
I was as noted in your book that that particular case referred as well to non-recognition of judges yes. appointed under UDI. Yes. Which is very interesting. Um, turning to the review of the first edition by Professor Ellison Khan in the South African Law Journal, he called your book an excellent treatise. He comments on your verve and your flashes of quiet humour and dry wit and your penetrating thought. And in his conclusion, he gives your book a first-class pass without any hesitation. He did, however, comment on page 317 that there is little consideration of modern continental views on the theory of private international law. Do you think that's a fair criticism? I think it's a reasonably fair criticism. Um, I don't know as much about continental theories of, of modern continental theories as perhaps I should. I know all about the old continental theories because these are the ones that are ingrained in the Roman Dutch law. Uh, but the new ones, not, not so much. Particularly so, perhaps in that 1981 uh, uh, edition of the book, because that it was, was before the EU had really got started. Right. And the EU had really, in the later editions, there are more and more mentions of the European Union and uh, the various approaches to private international law that had been adopted by the European Union. And in that regard, coming to your fifth edition of the book, published in 2012 by Jutta, you commented in the preface on page five, picking up the point you just made, Professor Forsyth, that English law had changed its focus because of EU yeah, law. Yes. And it meant that English law was no longer the first point of comparison for Roman Dutch law and no longer the leading common law jurisdiction in the field of private international law. And you said that for historically minded lawyers, they might shed a small tear. Do you think that this drift will now cease post-Brexit or is it entrenched? I think it's perhaps a bit too early to, to tell quite what's going to happen. I think one, one effect that has certainly happened is that the Hague Conference on Private International Law has become more important to the United Kingdom than it than, than had been the case in the past. But I think it's quite quite likely that a great deal of harmony will be reached by agreement. And what what was happening in, in European private international law is that instead of playing interested in games with the particular problems that lurk in private international law, problems of characterization and renvoi and so forth, about which students of private international wax lyrical, and I'm not going to say too much about it here. But instead of being concerned with things like that, you take a European piece of European legislation and you apply it to the entire the entire European Union, so that you get uniformity of decision across the European Union. And that is something that every com conflict lawyer, I think, should have close to the heart of their purpose, which is to, um, which is to so arrange matters that you get the same result, whether you litigate in one country or the other country. If we'd one of the examples I've been giving as we go along, if you were to litigate in Natal, you should get one answer. And if you were to litigate in the Cape, you should get the same answer. So you had uniformity of decision. Because that's the great injustice that private international law is really about, is disharmony of decision. When people reasonably expect that their affairs are going to be ordered in one way, and it turns out that they're going to be ordered in another way. So you get people who are married in one country, not in another, which may be the country in which they want to live, contracts which are enforceable in one place but not in another, and so forth and so on. And it's to secure that harmony of decision, which is a, a noble goal and ultimately an unachievable goal, but still a goal worth having. It was, this, this is what private international law is really all about, in, 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 my, in, in my opinion. 
and that's what the European Union was doing by legislation, whereas we've got to do it by agreement, agreement to international conventions of one kind or another. It is if in the UK at any rate, if we outside Europe. So um, I think I think it, things are going to change. I think it will be, become less. Um, well, there'll be more decision and agreement reached in places like the Hague Conference than, than in the EU in the future. You said that since the last edition, this was the fourth edition in two thousand and three. Both Kurt Lipstein and Ellison Kahn had sadly died, and that you'd learned a lot from them. And I wonder if you could sum up what their inspiration meant to you. Well, Kurt Lipstein taught me conflict of laws when I was doing the LLB in Cambridge. And he's, I think, what, what was called the voracious comparativist approach. Is, is what I, I took from him and his real enthusiasm for the subject. I sometimes get a bit confused though between him and Sir Otto Kahn Freund, who was the Lockhart Goodhart professor when when I was when, when I was reading for the LLB and he also taught us conflict of laws and he and, and they, they would teach classes jointly. So sometimes when I talk about the voraciously comparativist approach, I'm not sure whether I got this from Con, Con Freund or whether I got it from, from Kurt Lipstein. But they were both important influences in, in, in my, my development. Um, and we forever grateful to their memory. Ellison Kahn is, is another Another great man, uh, <clears throat> although he never taught me conflict of laws. He marked my conflict of laws exam paper though and gave it a good mark. <laughs> so, but I afterwards came to co collaborate with Alison Kahn on, on a variety of projects which I don't think is what I should go into now. Um, and I got to know him quite well. I would come and go up and see him in the University of Witwatersrand. <coughs> see him in the University of Witwatersrand quite uh, quite frequently. And he was an immensely punctilious man and courteous. Um, and I think he was really the the doyen of South African legal academics was Deputy Vice-Chancellor of, of WITS and um, had run the WITS Law School and was responsible for the success of the WITS Law School for many years. Yes. Thank you. So perhaps we can turn now to your valuable contributions to administrative law in the United Kingdom and we'll focus on your book, Administrative Law, Wade and Forsyth, published in 2014 by OUP, and this is the fifth edition that you've edited of the classic Wade book that first appeared in 1961. This was written when you were a professor of public law and private international law at Cambridge. You also did the tenth edition in 2009 while professor, while the two previous editions, the ninth and the eighth, were done while you were a reader. And in the preface, page 11, you comment that the number of applications for judicial review leaves students of administrative law in constant danger of being overwhelmed by a deluge of, de of decisions. And I wonder if in a nutshell you could say why you think this has become the case. Well, I don't think it's a matter of opinion. I think it's a matter, matter of simple fact that there's been a, a great increase in the number of applications for judicial review. Um, when in the early 1980s I think the numbers of cases uh, in, in any particular year would be in the low thousands 
and then in the and in the 90s it gets in perhaps into the high thousands and now if you count everything the great dispute is exactly how many it is but some people suggest it's even up to 50,000 and this is this has happened um, this has happened I think partly because judges have been more willing to uh, listen to an application for judicial review is a two-stage procedure in that you have first of all the application for permission or leave to apply for judicial review and then you've got the, the application proper and the and the judges can control the number of uh, applications for judicial review they have to deal with by refusing or granting leave on a more generous or more sparing basis. And so the perception has certainly got about amongst potential litigants. Take, for example, uh, immigration cases where the litigant, yeah, the disappointed litigant's only possible remedy the last throw of the dice is to apply for judicial review before the upper tribunal. Um, and as the number of immigrants turned away, prospective immigrants turned away, grows, so too the number of applications for judicial review increases. I think one also has to mention the Human Rights Act by imposing the, <clears throat> the duty to comply with the protected rights um, on all public authorities. This inevitably means that there will be cases where the human rights point will arise and the vehicle to remedy that is the application for judicial review. What you see when you get down into the deep, the deep statistics are there, is that the judges tend to manipulate the, this is just my, my impression, uh, I'm not putting this forward as a serious thesis, the judges tend to manipulate the granting of leave in order to ensure that the load of decision number of cases that actually becomes before an individual judge tends to remain the same over time. So you've got a sort of trade-off between delay and lots of cases being heard. Yeah. You trade it off. But yes, I think it's undeniable that there has been a great increase in, in the number of, of, of applications for judicial review. And particularly amongst litigants who, um, who have legal rights, who have human rights points to raise, or who are in extremists, such as a, an immigrant against whom a removal order has been made. Um, they do their best. It's the only way out. page six of your book on the alliance of law and administration, you claim that it is false to say that a well-developed administrative law holds back efficient government. However, although public authorities usually discharge duties conscientiously, they do slip up and courts have to intervene where errors are made. And then later, on page 14, you admit that we don't yet have a well-developed system because administrative law is I quote, a highly insecure science. And this is why you suggest that a written constitution has been advocated so that courts can be more confident in their constitutional position. Could you comment on this? Yes. <clears throat> First of all, I think at its heart, there's no conflict between judicial review and good administration. 
a good administrator wants to be set right on the law as much as the much as the litigant who's been harmed as a result of a legal breach. Um, so the, the good the good administrator wants to see that decisions are made fairly after listening to all sides, takes into account different policy perspectives and so forth in making the decision. And there's no necessary conflict there. But of course, once you get into court, once you, you have a, a particular individual who it's supposed claimed a political asylum, the application for asylum has been turned down, and they've disposed of all their appeals, and they still don't want to be sent back to the country from which they came, then they fall back on judicial review. And of course, well, they will face a, a strict opponent in the, in the courts from the, from the government. Um, which takes the view if you don't hold the line on every one of these cases, the whole system will be completely flooded. Uh, and on the other hand, their, their counsel will be finding every possible human rights argument as to why they should not be removed. And if, if, if we're in that sort of situation, then inevitably there's a great tension and a conflict between a real fight, or a much better example that just occurs to me would have been the political judicial reviews or the constitutional judicial reviews we had over Brexit, Willow 1 and Willow 2, um, where those judicial reviews stood at the, the heart of political conflict within the country. Uh, and that was being played out in the courts. And there's no doubt that it was very toughly hard fought, went far beyond individual rights. Thank you. At this point, it is germane to look at Elliot and Varroas' administrative law text and materials in which they assess into Elia your work in this field in general. And they comment on page five that on, on page five of your book, you introduce the concepts of the red and green light theory apropos the notion of ultravires. Your book is said to typify the red light theory aimed at curbing government powers. So in their text, Elliot and Verus, item 1.2.1, say that your stance makes the courts and the public authorities combatants. I wonder if you could comment on this statement. That's what I was trying to say a moment or two ago, that of course if, if your basis of judicial review is the ultra-virus doctrine, then if you bring an application for judicial review, you are necessarily making an assertion that the particular decision maker has acted out, outside their powers. And that inevitably tends to turn it into contest in that, of course, the decision-maker will say, uh, I'm acting within my powers, and you've, you've, you've got the, the fight set up there. Um, but I, I, think that's, I think that's inevitable from inevitable from the nature of our litigation, not necessarily a deep truth there. Uh, and just, we never, well, Bill Wade and I, never called ourselves red light theorists or green light theorists. Uh, that was a label that was attached to us by um, Carol Harlow and Richard Rawlins, if I remember correctly. Um, at, a, at its best, the administration and the courts work together and there's no tension between them. There are these occasions where they does become the kind of tension we've just we've just mentioned. Yeah. I mean, it's worth also perhaps making the point at this stage, in the context of those very high-profile constitutional judicial reviews, 
where they're really contesting partners. It's, it's it often stands at the cockpit of our of our political conflict. Um, those are rare cases. Of those ten or fifteen thousand cases of judicial reviews that are heard each year. Um, the vast majority of them are small-scale individuals worried about their planning permission um, or in a dispute with a passport office over why their passport has been delayed or thousand and one matters of that kind which affect the individuals and obviously very important for the individuals concerned are not great big political matters and often matters of no consequence politically but it's very great importance to the individuals concerned. Thank you. Under section 1.4.1 where they discuss the ultra-various doctrine they say that there are examples where courts enforce principles of good administration which have no clear relationship to a statute or the intentions of Parliament, traditionally created standards of public behaviour. And they cite from your 1996 paper of fig leaves and fairy tales, the ultra-various doctrine, the sovereignty of Parliament and judicial review, published in the 1996 Cambridge Law Journal, where you say that judicial creativity also forms the grounds for judicial review. Where do you think the line should be drawn? For most of the 20th century, the ultra-virus doctrine has been unchallenged as the basis of judicial review. And you need something like the ultra-virus doctrine so that you can, that you've got an answer for, shall we say, the rumbustious backbencher in Parliament, who says of the judge to the judge who's intervened in some decision, who are you to tell the Minister of Housing that houses must be designed on this basis or that basis? Who are you? Where do you get your authority from? Now, what's the judge to answer? Where do I get my authority from? Well, the answer used to be clear, and I think still is relatively clear. Answer, the answer is to say, I get my authority from the law, which says that the minister must stay within his powers, and the minister's just gone outside his powers, therefore his decision is illegal and invalid. That's the picture of the ultra-virus doctrine. It couldn't really survive the great growth in judicial review when judicial review began to extend to the prerogative and to non-statutory powers as well. Because if you're talking about somebody who isn't exercising a legal power at all, and you're subjecting them to judicial review, you can't really say you've acted beyond your powers if they haven't had any, got any power to act beyond, haven't got any legal powers to act beyond. So that was a problem. And that was essentially the problem that I wrote my 1996 article to combat, in that I put forward the theory I... Uh, pointed out the difficulties of the ultra of the ultra-virus doctrine. But then I said, what are you going to do about it otherwise? Well, what's your alternative? Because if you start looking around for alternatives, you soon discover that to abandon the ultra-virus doctrine is to abandon the sovereignty of Parliament. Do you want to do that? I thought that most people probably didn't want to do that. And anyway, we've got a sovereign Parliament, which is what we've got to live with. Yes, we were in until it's changed. Um, so I put forward the idea that 
it was perfectly reasonable and quite justifiable to interpret statutes in a way that they were consistent with the principles of the rule of law. There's lots of authority that says you can do this, and it's common sense as well. And I put forward that theory in my 1966 article, and it was about the same time that Mark Elliott was writing his first articles in this area. And he had much the same idea, but called it modified ultraviolet doctrine. And I like to think that it's the modified ultraviolet doctrine. I don't think Mark would descend from that, is, is something which we both did. Um, but it's, it's something that uh, I hope is clear in a lot of my articles. I try to write articles that solve problems, not make problems. And this is trying to solve the problem of, of finding the justification for, for judicial review of a particular decision without challenging the sovereignty of Parliament and staying relatively realistic and, uh, and accurate. And, and that's what, what we did with the modified ultraviolet doctrine. <coughs> now, I'm not sure. question gets, gets back of itself and as to sovereignty of Parliament. If Mark and Jason are saying that you get to the end of parliamentary influence and then there's an area where the judges have free hand to do what they are doing, then I think that is a hidden attack on the sovereignty of Parliament because it's suggesting that there's this area in which Parliament cannot stray. Um, if they, on the other hand, they're saying that it's reasonable to interpret legislation as being consistent with the rule of law, if you can, on the, on the words used, then you've got the modified ultra-virus doctrine and there's no difference between us at all. Right. And that's, that's really been, been my life, that article. Um, went out on a limb a little way, I think, but I think it was quite reasonably argued. And it's the first time I've ever had an article that had, a, had an, uh, an international impact in that I got letters from quite a few people all over the world saying um, enjoyed reading it or whatever. Apropos of that article, Sir John Law's question in Supperston Guardian Walker mm. Judicial Review at page 97 says that apropos the situation when Parliament didn't express a view on discriminatory powers that a body may have used and where perhaps fairness becomes an issue, um, perhaps this is a case, as Eliot and Vera say, where the common law could fill the vacuum without contradicting Parliament, which again would perhaps be your modified ultra-various theory? Yes, I would agree. I don't think John Laws would agree, but I'm, I, 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 I'm easily reconcilable to lots of, lots of these, these points of view. Um, I, I wrote another article called Heat and Light, in which I tried to persuade us, everybody to come under one umbrella that the, the people who wanted to base judicial review in the common law in, or in the principles of good administration or whatever um, were unreluctant to do that, particularly Paul Craig. But ultimately the question is this, suppose Parliament lays down what the requirements for validity of a certain act are. It says, you're going to have to have so much natural justice and you're going to have to have um, so much proper purposes and improper purposes. These are the various things that you must do. You must, you must get right if you want to act validly. And you say, right, 
if the judge can come along, if the judicial review judge can come along and say, there's an extra requirement for validity. There's one that isn't mentioned by Parliament, but it's an extra requirement for validity. We require perhaps the parties to have a legal representation. If that is effective, then you have denied Parliament's ability to specify ultimately what the requirements for validity are. And so you're challenging the supremacy of Parliament. And the supremacy of Parliament is not the only way in which you can run a country might not even be the best way for us to run the country, but it's what we've got. If we want to change it, we can change it. But we can't expect the judges to do it on their own. Because if the judges were to... Because what is at stake here is the, is the final... Who has the last word in any dispute over whatever it might be? Who has the last word? If we've got a Supreme Parliament... Parliament has the last word for good or But if we haven't, then it probably means the judges have the last word. Now you're going to get from Parliament having the last word to the judges having the last word without a referendum, a general election, a debate in Parliament, anything of these, these, these things. Instead, what the critics tend to do is to adopt what I call the smorgasbord approach to, to these issues and to just take what seems to them to be apt and, and say, well, well it would be jolly convenient if adherence to the principles of good administration was the basis of judicial review. So let's just make it the basis of judicial review. That's it's the smallest board approach. You, you just pick out what you like and you put it up. Well, it, it can't be done. I don't know our constitutional order. I've spent a lot of time pointing that out. Some people may think too long. Well, that is very interesting indeed. So, in summary, could you reminisce on what you believe are your single most important contributions on the advancement of South African Roman Dutch law and UK administrative law? As far as South Africa is concerned, I think we haven't discussed them in this session, but I think my uh, jurisprudential articles about human rights have become the orthodoxy in South Africa, not necessarily because of my articles, but the idea that you should have uh, fundamental rights protected by the independent judiciary um, has become the orthodoxy, whereas in fact it wasn't the orthodoxy in the early 1980s. And I think that's, that's something that I'm quite proud of. As far as private international law is concerned, I'm, I'm sort of particularly proud of that book because it's the it's the only book, only general textbook on, on Roman Dutch private international law uh, for hundreds of years, and uh, it's more than simply an account of the cases. It seeks to put on the cases a approach to the subject that encourages uniformity of decision as much as possible. So I think that may be where I end up having my greatest influence in Southern Africa, because the book is cited all over Southern Africa. Whenever there's a private international law problem, um, and and that my and because it decided all over South Africa having, having no competition, 
very little competition. It um, it has put that approach to uniformity of decision into the law of Southern Africa in a way that I think is is beneficial. So I put that down as one of my. As far as administrative law is concerned, of course, Bill Wade was, of course, master of keys when I was a PhD student. So I got to name a, <coughs> a bit in it, college dinners and the like. And uh, I would say various, put forward various views on administrative law and he'd sort of, what he said wisely and say he, he agreed or, or didn't agree as the case might be. And then he wrote me a note of congratulations after one of my articles had been published in the Cambridge Law Journal. So I was very touched by that. Very pleased that he to receive that from, from a figure like me, like Bill. And then it must have been in 1990 or so. I was sitting in my room in college when the phone went <coughs> and it was Bill on the other end of the phone and he said he's beginning to prepare for, the, for his next edition and would I be prepared to join with him in doing it. And of course my life changed at that moment because it's been, <coughs> it's dominated my academic work ever since. Work on the book. There's always work on the book. But it's been wonderful for me in many, many other ways because I, I, I benefit from Bill's reputation in a way that perhaps I shouldn't. But wherever I go in the world, there's always a... There isn't one of my old students. There's a, an attorney general or Minister of Justice or its Chief Justice or whatever, who has a copy of Wade and Forsyth on their desk and use it, use it regularly. So particularly of value for people who aren't necessarily right at the cutting edge of administrative law but need to be brought up to speed in a particular area. So I've devoted a lot of my life to that. And um, I, mean, I can't claim all the credit for it. In fact, I can claim a small part of the credit for it. But I'm very proud of the fact that I've now done three editions of, of the book on my own since Bill died. And the standard still seems to keep up. I seem to pay attention to it. I mean, way back in, in my days in South Africa, when I started turning to law, it was quite a revelation to me that you could have a career in, in, in a world of influence rather than power. And the um, and the way the South African judges, for example, had reformed the law of mens rea as an example of a judicial achievement within the existing constitutional framework, which greatly improved the law or significantly improved the law. Um, it seemed to me that that could be a reasonable way in which you could spend your life. And that's what's what I've ended up doing. And to have been able to do that in two jurisdictions is quite pleasing to me. I can imagine. I must thank you for these wonderful interviews. 
which throws so much light on the development of South African law and UK administrative law, I'd also like to record my thanks to you and Gillian Charles for your kind hospitality in this wonderful rural setting. Thank you so much, Professor Forsyth. Well, it's been a real joy being interviewed by you, Leslie. Thank you. You're quite emotional. <laughs> Have there been any developments and who will take over from you? Well, there has been a development and just on this Sorry. I went to a meeting and just going to 